Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, welcome along to this week's Writer's Routine, where we're chatting to the psychological thriller author Phoebe Locke. Her brand new book, The July Girls, is out right now, and we'll talk about following up on the huge success from her first novel, The Tall Man. Also, you can hear about her, like, rigidly strict timing of the way that she works every day. Uh, There's more about that. And you can also find out what's changed for her now she's writing properly. She's doing it full-time. Having now gone full-time writing, which was the dream, I absolutely love it, it's such a different way of working, having this vast amount of day ahead of you, that I felt a bit lost in it. And I found myself writing less than I ever had, which is obviously not how it should be working. Um... So I sort of needed a better way to kind of enforce those shorter bursts of time on myself, I think. I think it's, it is easier to write intensively for a short time than it is to try and fill nine to five just staring at your screen. Stay there. Loads more on the way with Phoebe Locke in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. My name's Dan Simpson. Welcome along. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we have a skim through the working day of a successful author to try and steal some of their scheduling secrets. Uh, Thanks for giving us a listen and a download. Whatever you're doing, thank you so much for being part of the show. Uh, And also, if you're in the UK, I hope you're coping with this just preposterous heat that we've got going on at the moment. I really don't want to be one of these people that kind of moans that it's so cold all year and then finally when we get some heat, just shelter in the shade and whinge about it. But it would be nice for a little breeze every now and then, wouldn't it? Uh, Yes, this week we have got Phoebe Locke on the show. She's a psychological thriller writer. Her new novel, The July Girls, is tipped as being one of the books of the summer. So perfect for one of the hottest weeks on record. And her first book uh, was The Tall Man, had huge success. So we'll talk about how you follow up on that, dealing with the pressure from a phenomenal debut novel, how that impacts the way you write your second and your third and all the rest of your stories. Uh, She does a lot of research as well, does Phoebe. She spent a week in psychotherapy training, uh, learning all about the state of killers so she could make the one that she was writing about really authentic and truly believable. Now, The July Girls talks about a murder that happens at the same time every single year. And it happens on one of our protagonists' birthday. And there's a little thought that maybe her dad's got something to do with it. 
You can hear about how she came up with that idea and, and stylistically how she chose to wrote it and whether she thought at times that was a little bit gimmicky. Uh, that's on the way. Uh, also, Phoebe is not her real name. It's actually the pseudonym of Nikki Cloak, uh, who's published five books under that name before. And I'm always really interested in pseudonyms, why you make the decision to do that, whether it in fact is your decision or if it's more on the marketing side, uh, because maybe they think another name will help you sell that genre much better. We'll talk about that and you can hear about her extremely rigid time constraints in the way that she works every day. You can also hear a top writing tip from one of the most successful crime writers around today. That's up in just a sec. First, let's get into it with Phoebe Locke, all about her brand new book, The July Girls. And we start, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Um, At the moment, I have a mood board in front of me, in front of my desk, and it is covered in estate agent particulars for a house where I'm setting the next novel. So I look at pictures of that. All day. Um, (laughs) Tell me about the whole room then. So where is it in your house? It's at the top. So my house is a narrow, skinny, three-storey townhouse kind of thing. And it's right at the top. So as far away from the kitchen as possible, which really helps me. Um, So I climb up two flights of stairs and I've got an office in the eaves up there. So... And talk to me about the room then, aside from the mood board that you see, uh, the desk that you're on. I have a big... L-shaped desk, which is usually covered in notebooks and papers. It's very untidy, um, but a nice plant beside it. I like plants in all the rooms in my house. And then behind me, so not too in my sight line, is a sofa where sometimes I'll sit and go over hard copy notes or or make notes in my notebook and stuff. Any inspiration on the walls? Any art? Any pieces of design? No. I have a whiteboard where I make notes and then, yeah, the mood board as well. And I have one inspirational thing I have is... I ran the London Marathon five years ago and I have my finishing time framed up there because nothing will be harder than that was. <laughs> no book or editing sign have hurdles will be harder than that marathon. So <laughs> So usually I ask authors if I were to walk into a room would I see clues as to what they were writing in there? But um, with, with the whiteboard, with the mood board, clearly yeah. there is. Just talk to me about the mood board for a second then. Uh, you say you've got estate agent clippings. Are you yes. going around sourcing this inspiration or is it an as and when situation? Well, with this one, so this is for the next book that um, I'm working on. It's I bought a house last year and before I bought that house, I went to see this one and... Um, it's a very big old house that had been divided into two, quite an odd situation. And I knew as soon as I walked through the door that I was not interested in this house. Like I needed so much work doing. It was really creepy and old. But I still really enjoyed the whole tour of the house because I knew I'd probably write about it <laughs> rather than live in it. Um, so that's why I've got all the particulars for that. But generally for mood boards, I'll tend to kind of print things off the internet, like just images or something that speaks to me, maybe a map. So... Um, I wrote a novel a few years ago about San Francisco and I took my own photos when I, I went on a trip there and then pinned those up to remind myself of what things were. So, yeah, all kinds of things end up on there. And with the whiteboard, yeah. if I were to look at the whiteboard yeah. without any knowledge of what this story is, yeah. would things become clear to me? Is there an order or, or just random scrolls? It's usually random scrolls. Um So this time last year when I was writing The July Girls, the book that comes out um, quite soon, um, that book is about a serial killer which who strikes on the same day in July every year in London. 
And so my kind of whiteboard mood board spread out over all the walls of that room because I had to track each victim, where they were last seen, um, all their sort of particulars and keep them in mind. So stepping into that room was a bit like stepping into a psychopath's brain. I wouldn't have recommended visiting me during the writing of that book. Is that something that's necessary for you then? I've spoken to some crime writers who don't feel the need to organise their mind and also Mm. to to sort out how realistic the story is like that. Yeah. Is it it important for you to, for there to be a a thread of almost truth, uh, you know, something that is accurate in your story? Yes, I think... um, I like having things to look at in terms of like timelines or background info on characters. Um, it's not necessarily something I do before I start writing. Um, I would usually write the first five or 10,000 words of a story cold and just go straight into it and get to know the characters. But I find it then helps. Usually the doubts will start setting around them where I start to worry like, is this, is this going to be enough to carry a novel or is this going to work with twists or whatever? So then going in something much more practical, like the details of a police investigation or a serial killer's methods, victims' backgrounds, somehow helps me ground that confidence in carrying the rest of the story. So I'll usually, yeah, we'll stop at that point and try and get more of a framework behind the novel and then carry on. The first thing that I should definitely say is that my routine changes. And that is, for me, the most important part of my writer's routine is that I don't like to get too bored so I'll have things that work really intensively for me for a couple of months and then I'll have to change it up. So usually with the first draft, I quite like writing first thing in the morning. I find that if I can start writing before I've looked at any social media or emails or anything and just get in a good sort of hour or two just focusing on the novel, sometimes that's a better quality of work than writing all day. Um, so I'll do that, but then usually on a second draft I find I like working late at night. Is that strictly like that? It, it's the first novel I'm doing it early in the morning, the second draft I'm doing it late usually, at night. Usually, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I think maybe it's just it's human nature, isn't it, to to get bored of things. It's the same with, with running. I think running has really helped me with writing because I realised quite quickly with running, physically running, your body gets used to very quickly and like your fitness improves it's keeping your brain engaged that is the hard part about distance running. It's not, your brain will start being like, I'm bored of this thing you've been doing for three hours, let's stop doing it. Whereas, and with writing it's the same, you can, it's more about, yeah, keeping the brain engaged and interested. And um, so I think, yeah, that kind of changing things up does help, especially when you get to sort of sixth or seventh draft and you've been at it for ages. Something as simple as, a change of scenery will help me. So I'll spend most of the time in my office with the mood board, but occasionally if I'm finding it hard to get into a chapter, just moving my laptop down into the garden or down to the sofa will really help me. So I think much of my routine is tricking my brain. <laughs> um, let me take you through a first draft day then. Yeah. So say you've woken up nice and early. Yeah. What time would that be? Maybe like six or seven, depends on the... And then would you jump straight into writing? I would try, yeah. So maybe give yourself half an hour to just kind of, you know, wake up. Um, if, you, if you were to start writing, for instance, at half seven on a first draft day in the yeah. morning, when would you carry on writing to? And then how would the rest of that day look? So I would try and do probably an hour straight writing then. Um, 
because yeah, like I say, I find it much easier if I haven't got anything else to do, like emails or things that have sort of set in and added to my to-do list. An hour then is good. Then I'll go and have breakfast, a very large coffee usually, and then back up to my office. And that's when I would start doing the Pomodoro technique, which I've absolutely love for writing. So I'll do, have a little timer. Talk to me about this technique. Yes, so Pomodoro. Um, sounds fancy. It's just called that because of the. Do you ever see those tomato-shaped timers that you have for cooking? Yes. That's why it's called the Pomodoro. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is twenty-five minutes intensive activity, whatever it is. Obviously, writing for me. Uh, timer goes off. You give yourself five-minute break. Um, another twenty-five minutes, and you do that three or four times, and then have a longer break of say fifteen minutes to half an hour, and then back in with your bursts and I, it really works for me actually having that intensive because 25 minutes isn't very long but you can actually write quite a lot in it and it's so much easier not to reach out for your phone or go onto the internet if you know you've only got 25 minutes when you can't do that how did you discover this then because it sounds from from the little that we, we we've talked about so far yeah. that you kind of know the way that you work and you know yeah. where when to mix things up, when to change your scenery, when to move downstairs. Yeah. Why did you feel that you needed this strict organisation in time? I think it's because um, I, up until two years ago, I was always working part-time. In fact, I worked full-time for my first couple of novels and then part-time. So I had very dedicated writing days, which I guarded so fiercely. And I was very used to sort of coming home from work and writing from like say seven till nine at night. Having now gone full-time writing, which was the dream, I absolutely love it. It's such a different way of working, having this vast amount of day ahead of you. that I felt a bit lost in it and I found myself writing less than I ever had, which is obviously not how it should be working. Um, so I sort of needed a better way to kind of enforce those shorter bursts of time on myself, I think. I think I think it's, it is easier to write intensively for a short time than it is to try and fill nine to five just staring at your screen. That is quite a kind of scary thing to have ahead of you. <laughs> did, did you try out many techniques before stumbling upon this Pomodoro? No, um, another writer recommended it to me actually. Um, Kim Curran, who's a YA writer, had been singing the praises of Pomodoro for all kinds of work actually, but writing in particular and yeah. It really works for me. Very quickly, I know we're slightly digressing from, from the point, but that moment that you d became full-time yeah. and you found yourself writing possibly less, yeah. um, is, is that accurate? I mean, how long would it take you to write a, a full novel whilst you were still working full-time and then part-time? I mean, it, they did very, very much. I wrote some YA novels a couple of years ago and the first draft of one of those took about three months. So quick and it didn't actually change that much. It was quite like an intensive, I was a nanny when I was writing that. So I was writing during the baby's nap times. Um, so it's actually quite, although childcare is so unpredictable, that was actually quite a rigid writing schedule. Like you'd get this sort of hour and a half in the afternoon. Um, whereas other novels have taken sort of up to a year for the first draft. So I think it depends on the story, depends on how plot heavy the story is and how much you need to, whether it's like a very, You've got to hit certain plot points. That obviously takes a bit more, a bit more work ahead of time. I think. Okay. So then the first draft will be quicker. 
I guess I'm just asking if it's if it's merited the move to full time, mm. if it actually has any implications for your writing, yeah. or if it's just you know you can do it, and it gives you a lot more chances to do everything else that comes with being a writer. Yes. Is is it fruitful for you? Do, do you think being a full time writer? I feel like I've been trying not to say this too much because I do. I've, I'm really grateful that I'm doing it. It's this thing I'm so passionate about. It's great that it's my full time job, but. I wouldn't say it is my most productive way of working and I'm trying to find ways around that. I've actually been thinking about going back to doing bar work or maybe more childcare. Just, I think it was a lot of pressure on on your writing if it is your full-time op- occupation. I would never tell anyone not to do it, um, but I think it's worth thinking carefully about whether the dream is actually, it definitely changed your focus on it being a passion to being a profession or a sole profession, it is, it's a lot of pressure every morning to sit down, I think this is my job today, rather than, I don't know, I guess when I was working, I just couldn't wait to get back to, to that story. Whereas when you're living with it day in, day out, it's a different feeling. I do know that afternoons aren't a great time for me. It tends to be my real slump of the day. Like I like writing in the morning and in the evening, the afternoon is not my most imaginative time. So I'll tend to reserve the afternoons for any admin-y sort of stuff. At the moment, emails from my publicist are coming in about little bits and pieces that need doing. So I'll sort of do those in the afternoon. Any housework, go for a run, um, reading. If I've got proofs that have come in that, that need reading, I'll do that in the afternoon. And then after dinner, I tend to do a bit of writing then. For some reason, I get like a second wind in the evening usually when I should be winding down, getting ready for bed. That's suddenly... after the run. Yeah, I guess That's so. why it's, it, it, it's keeping you kind of ticking over. Yeah. Um, how many words do you hope to get done during a day? 2,000 is, is good. Um, I, don't, I don't really beat myself up if I haven't done that. I think I now would try and aim for about 10,000 a week, whether that happens. Sometimes you get loads done on a weekend and not so much during the week. I'm, I'm more flexible. Are you concerned about the state of those 10,000 words or is it just anything out there? Get it out there. I'm a big fan of the draft zero, the messy draft zero. I wouldn't even call it a first draft. It's just me telling myself the story, I guess. And it is hard. It is hard to the next day look at what you've written and think, God, that needs so much work. But I really make myself carry on. I try not to go back and edit as I go. And in terms of those words, how rigid a, p- a plotter are you? Um, I mean, when when you've got an idea for a story and you've got this benchmark that you'd quite, quite like to get 10,000 words done a week, yeah. do you know exactly what you're writing on each day? I So I used to be a much more rigid plotter. Um, I used to have a real detailed outline and I've kind of gone off that as the years have gone on. I've kind of got more into... I still like to know where I'm going, but I like to have a bit more flexibility in that. So at the moment, the book I'm working on, I have got, there's two main characters who have sections each, and I know what's got to happen in each section, but there's a lot of space around that to kind of explore. Um, And I think that, yeah, a mixture of plotting and pantsing works for me. Um, But with the July Girls, because... The July Girls covers quite a big space of time, 2005, 2017. I needed to be a bit more like, I need to keep track of what's happening in each time period and 
how the characters are aging and where they are and stuff. So I had to be a bit more strict with myself about not going off the plot, basically. I think we'll unpack that in just a second. Just for, for I think very lastly, yeah, about the routine. Yeah. Um, is there anything else, anything slightly strange or eccentric, just a little quirk that helps you get through the day? I mean, before we pressed record, you were telling me something about going on the tube. Can, can you just oh, yeah. e expand on that and maybe other nuances that help you tell your story? I love going on the train for getting ideas, thinking about ideas, fixing ideas. The train is my fail safe or being in the back of a car also, but with a driver you don't have to talk to. So like friends who don't really expect you to. Is your <laughs> Uber bill massive? Love an Uber for thinking about things. I think it's that kind of staring out of the window in a confined space where you're not expected to do anything is good thinking time. So I have been known in the past to just get on the Victoria line and just ride it up and down because I've got a problem with a plot that I can't fix. Um, the shower also, I love being in the shower. For some reason, I don't know what it is, Standing in the shower will almost always fix a hurdle I've come across in a story. Um, so I think that's the other thing about running in the afternoon is an excuse to get in the shower <laughs> and to be thinking about things in the shower. So, yeah. Do you listen to music when you write? Um, I listen to movie soundtracks, um, particularly if I've got, say, a fight scene or a particularly creepy scene. I do listen to film soundtracks, but not that have any... They have to be instrumental only. So Gone Girl soundtrack is a big favourite. That gets played a lot. Um, Harry Potter, the later Harry Potter soundtracks have got some good, dramatic, tense music. So, Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So this is episode number 69 of the show, which means next week... Uh, we'll have brought you interviews and tips and advice from 70 authors. It's taken pretty much two years to get to this state. Thank you so much if you've been with us the whole way. Uh, or if you've just come to the show, we've been in magazines recently. I'm so pleased that you've found us and that you've stuck around. How about you try and help out, though? If any of the tips and tricks from the almost 70 authors that we've had on the show have really helped the way that you tell your stories... 
why don't you help us carry on bringing you interviews with some of the best authors around as frequently as we can. Uh, you can support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a couple of dollars a month uh, gets you access to some stuff that you can't get uh, without supporting the show. Uh, there is writer's routine merchandise that you can get on there there's also ways that you can listen to extra episodes where you can get your questions answered uh, it doesn't cost a lot it's just a couple of dollars every month the price of a, a cup of coffee or a pint just a way that you can say uh, hello that you're there that you're listening that you love what we do that we've really helped you out and that you want to see us carry on as often as we can i know it's one of those things that you always kind of mean to do then forget i mean please i listen to so many podcasts who ask for cash and oh yeah i'll get round to that and then something else always gets in the way. Then I have a look at my bank balance. Then I realise I've not really got the cash to give any podcast that I like even a couple of quid every month. But if you do have the time, if you can spare a few dollars to help out the show, I'd love you to get involved over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Hello, my name is Stuart McBride. Uh, my new book, All That's Dead, is out right now. And my, work, my one writing tip for you would be sit your backside in a chair and write. Write, write, write. Look at it, tell yourself it's terrible, and fix it. Just write and keep writing. If you don't write, you cannot be a writer. There's no point just sitting, thinking about it. Do it. Let's get back into the second half of the episode then with Phoebe Locke, and we talk more about the actual story in this one, about the July Girls, about where she had the idea, how she expanded on that idea, how she stylistically tried to put that idea down on the paper. Uh, also, we talk about genre, about working in genre, about uh, following the tropes and conventions of the genre, but also trying to do it your own way. Uh, there's a lot about characterization in this as well. I'm really interested in when there are quite a lot of psychological thrillers and also crime thrillers around. I'm interested in how you make your characters stand out from the rest. There's also some more chat about uh, her pseudonym, Phoebe Locke. It's not her real name. You can hear about why she made that decision in a little bit. First, let's dive back into it. Uh, talking about the brand new story, The July Girls, and the very first moment that the idea for this book came into her head. I mean, it's actually a long time ago now. I think it's probably maybe five or six years ago now. Um, and it was a short story. I'd been asked to pitch a short story to an online magazine. And I had these two sisters who came into my head living in Brixton, which is where I was living at the time. Um, one's much older. She's about... 12 years older than the younger sister and absent parents for various reasons um, so the sister is really doing a lot of the the raising of the younger sister um, and the setup of the short story is completely different to what the novel has turned out to be and the short story was terrible um, didn't get picked up with a magazine or anything but the sisters always stayed with me for some reason they were just very clear in my head um, and over the intervening years I have tried to come up with plots for them a couple of times and I've never quite found the right story for them there was something about the dynamic of them that that there was this big age gap that the older sister was trying to bring up the younger sister in quite they're very poor they're living quite a difficult life um and yeah I, I was just really fascinated by them and they were so clear in my head you don't always get that with characters that you can really see them quite early on um but I just knew that I needed the right 
the right story for that to kind of come out and be fully explored. How much did they change in the time between when you first had them to when you actually started writing? They haven't changed at all. Like they are, they are still how I pitched them in that short story. Um, everything else has changed completely. I mean, I think the short story was in like a post-apocalyptic, <laughs> slightly speculative <coughs> London. And the novel is in London as we know it. Um, yeah, from 2005 to 2017. Um, and I think the kind of turning point was I started thinking about 7-7 in, in London. Um, that's kind of a day that's always been of interest to me because I remember it very clearly, even though I wasn't in London, I was in Australia when 7-7 happened. Um, so I remember watching it on the news in Australia with all these other Brits, just in complete shock. Um, and yeah, I just this really sudden picture of their dad, the two sisters, Addie and Jessie, their dad coming home on the night of 7-7 covered in blood, but having not been in the attacks, having maybe used the attacks as a way of hiding some other terrible deed. Um, and yeah, it kind of just, it went from there. So the, the pitch of the July Girls is, it's um, a serial killer who strikes on the same day in July in London each year. And the main character is Addie, who is the younger sister, who starts to believe that it could possibly be her dad who is doing these killings. That's the pitch. You've got this idea of the of the dad who comes back on the 7-7, covered in blood. And yeah. Then how does that then, um, how do you unpack that idea for it to become the pitch that you've just given me? Uh, how much are you sitting there racking your brain, you know, mind mapping, and how much is it just naturally or organically forming? Um, I had quite a lot of mind mapping, I think. I like a good spider diagram. <laughs> <laughs> a little flow chart sometimes. Um, I think that was a good starting point. I love um, the Stephen King advice, like that all his novels are a what-if question. So having this what-if your dad came home and you started to worry he had killed somebody. So in the novel, um, Addie sees him come home. She's only 10. It's her 10th birthday, actually, on 7-7. On um, and the first thing that she would do is to tell Jessie, her older sister, the person she trusts most in the world, that she's seen this thing. And uh, Jessie then goes on to find a woman's purse in his belongings and a woman's the woman's driving license. Um, and then you get to another what-if question. What would Jessie who is a very different character to Addie. She's not this kind of open, honest, trusting character. She's much more, she's a survivor. She's a, she, I wouldn't use the word devious, but she certainly looks at situations from all angles to figure out what's best for her. And uh, what would she do with that? And she would go to the, the address and the driving license to see who is this woman who, my dad's got her purse. And it turns out that this woman is from a very wealthy family living in a big house. Her husband is there with a missing wife and a young baby, very distraught. And Jessie manipulates that situation to her advantage. Um, and so from there, you, sudden, you can suddenly see a novel opening up just by asking those what if questions. And I think I just carried on doing that for a while to see what would happen if Jessie kind of found her way into that man's life knowing full well that her father might might have been involved in his wife's disappearance. What what provoked the thought then to have more bodies turning up every year? It's a good question because I can't remember. <laughs> I think, um, 
yeah, I don't know. I think I had got really into into the idea of a, a serial killer and and having that one day a year. And because it's Addie's birthday, you get this as the as the years add up, and there's a woman going missing every day, every year on that day. Addie's personal involvement becomes much more because she starts to think, is it somehow connected to me that it's happening on as I get older? Every year I age, someone else is losing their life. Like, how is that tying back to me? So I think that's, yeah, really dragging her into into what's happening. What happens next then? You've just told me the pitch yes. and, and you, you, you've expanded on it, but what happens next for you as a writer when you've got this idea yeah. that this is what's going to happen right at the start? The dad's going to come home and the girl's going to find the driving licence and she's going to yeah. go and try and inspect something then what do you do as a, as an author? How do you follow this journey? I think at first I really thought I was going to write it all, all it following on from that, the whole novel for Addie to have been 10 and for them to be getting involved with this woman's family and maybe starting to realise there have been other victims before and maybe other victims will happen again. And I think I just wanted to write that all in one long section. But actually as I went on, I I became interested in seeing what would happen to Addie as she became an adult. Um, she is probably the character I spent the most time with and really, really thought about as a, as a character and as a product of her upbringing. And I was very interested in seeing how that would affect her growing up and how the sisterly relationship would change as she became more aware that her sister was doing things that aren't necessarily good things. Um, and so I decided then that I was going to, join them every three years. So the novel has five sections and each time you're skipping forward three years to see where they've ended up and how this relationship with Lex, who is the missing woman's husband, has changed over those three years, how the relationship with their father has changed. Um, but obviously the important thing is to keep the reader informed about what's happening with the murders as well because that's obviously the thread that's carrying things. So then I introduced a non-fiction but it's obviously not non-fiction, a pretend non-fiction book about the murderers that is being about the murders that's being written um at a later date. So I wrote a really long section of by this non-fiction author that I'd made up. So this is still all in the inside the story. Yeah, so each section, before you skip forward three years, you get a little passage from this made up investigation about the murders to keep you informed of what's happening on the outside and to kind of give you a perspective on the police investigation that Addie as a child wouldn't have. So you get this other viewpoint of these other victims and what's going on and give you clues as to whether it, it whether her father could be implicated, like to help you have your own kind of investigation as well as hers. But so that was just even more complicated. <laughs> as a writer with that, and I don't mean this to come across critically because it's not, were you at all worried about how that might be viewed as a technique, uh, as possibly a gimmick in the way that the story's told? Um, no. <laughs> Basically, I think something I really like when I read, I, I don't know what the actual term is, but I quite like, I think of them as collage novels, where you have different viewpoints and different things. Um, one of my favourite novels of the last sort of five or ten years is The Three by Sarah Lotz. Have you ever read that? I've not. It's brilliant, and it's, it's, it's about um, these three plane crashes that happen at the same time across the world and 
from each plane crash, there's one survivor, a child. And there becomes all these kind of doomsday theories about the kids and lots of different things that happen to do with these crashes. But she presents it as all these different interviews, um, transcripts of tapes, uh, diaries, and it's all kind of put together to give you this kind of multi-layered story. And I absolutely love that. I've done it before with one of my YA novels about a school shooting where I've had different characters telling you different things in the form of interviews. And it's something I really like doing as a writer. It probably is a little bit gimmicky. <laughs> it was the second book of a two book deal. The first book was very much a psychological thriller, The Tall Man. Um, and so there was an expectation to deliver another psychological thriller. And, you know, the hook that we just talked about is very crime thriller, like standard murders are happening, who's doing it? Um, but the writing of it, it became much more about the sisters and the family dynamic. And it is, in some ways, a really twisted coming of age story for Addie, growing up under the shadow of this possibility that her dad is this terrible serial killer. Um, so I started to worry, this, I don't think this is <laughs> actually crime, this is turning into a coming of age thing. But then I just had to embrace that, I think. And it definitely has ended up being a crime novel. It, there is there is that aspect to it, but it, it is, it's kind of layered with this much more tender kind of story, I think, in a way. Because I really, I really started to feel for all the characters, good and bad. With, with the tenderness of your story there, yeah. uh, that would massively impact the voice that this is being written in. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, although it's still crime, uh, as you say, a tender kind of coming of age story yeah. is, is written in quite a different way to a, yeah. uh, a nuts and bolts crime thriller. Yeah. How much thought did you give to the voice that is telling this story and also the simple words on the page, what word you're using next? So with Addie, very easy. Um, yeah, she she because she is, I have obviously ha had her in my head for sort of five or six years. I do know how she speaks very, very well. And knowing quite early on that I was going to follow her to adulthood was much easier because rather than tell it in a 10-year-old voice, I could tell it in her adult voice. So she throughout the novel is telling us the story from a point you know she's about 25 when she's telling us the story she's looking back and you can sort of play with that as well it's her memories of things which maybe aren't always that trustworthy it's an unreliable narrator but not quite just to kind of yeah you do wonder how, how yeah. well she remembers <laughs> certain things um and i actually went i did a psychotherapy course um while i was writing this novel about characters, so it's an absolutely brilliant short course about how to apply aspects of psychotherapy to your characters. So a specific writing course? Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, it's brilliant, um, at Faber Academy, and that really helped. So I was, so yeah, Addie, I feel like I know inside out. I know how a psychotherapist would look at her. <laughs> that was all fine, but like you say, it's sort of, it's harder to make that into a crime novel, and so I think that's why introducing the non-fiction book into the thing took the pressure off that so you can um laurie who is the writer of the the non-fiction account of the murders um can tell you things in a much more straightforward this character this this victim left this bar at this time and was never seen again and so you kind of can balance out addie's nostalgic 
kind of angsty teen years with something much colder and harder. And I, I actually enjoyed playing those two things off against each other to try and get the tension. Uh, but you mentioned, we were talking at the start rather about uh, you know the balance between pantsing and plotting and how yeah. that sometimes changes for you yeah. but it sounds like in this story uh, w- when you're coming back to visit the girls every three years and you've yeah. also got the non-fiction element in there as well yeah. how thoroughly did you plot this one how much did you know about what had happened in every section of three years before you sat down to write definitely with the girls I did know um you know where they would be and um I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but the older sister has a baby and you're not sure who the father is. And yeah, it was quite easy to follow them. I knew that Addie, the young one, would want to go off to university and would try and leave things behind and I'd get to follow her doing that. Um, With the non-fiction thing, I did need to know that pretty detailed, actually, before I could go in. And it became, I'm not a police procedural writer at all. I don't know anything about that kind of thing. So that meant a lot of research. The stuff that I had to Google for this book has definitely, <laughs> definitely got me on a watch list somewhere. Um, but yeah, just things like Addie goes to visit a character in prison in, in one uh, scene and I had to know like what category prisoner that person would be and how easy it would be to get in to see them. Um, things like, I, just, I wanted to just put little bits of the police investigation into the non-fiction but not too much. Like I say, that's not what the book is, but you need some of it for authenticity, I think. Just an idea of how somebody could kill people in central London for 10 years without being caught is going to take some thought about CCTV and AMPR and stuff. So I had to study a bit of that. Quite late on, I discovered that um, AMPR records in London are supposed to be deleted after two years which did not fit with the plot <laughs> at all so I had to go and unpick some of that so yeah at what point did you realize how it was ending um I'm trying really hard not to give away spoilers as soon as I brought in a certain character it fell into place when I set out to write it I knew that a character was going to be mm. the murderer whether or not it's her dad is, I guess, yeah, that's the way. <laughs> um, but as I was writing, I started to realise that the ending I had in mind didn't feel right. And a different ending worked better for me. It just seemed to sit better as the ending. So then some frantic, like, more mind mapping happened. <laughs> and yeah, so I would say maybe about halfway through the first draft okay. I realised well, 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 well done you, I think you were spoiler free with that one <laughs> um, well that, that leads me into this question then and this is an inter- because I don't think I've spoke I don't speak to many crime writers who uh, their character the character story of it is, yeah. is so integral to the plot yeah what dr- what dr- drove a lot of this story was it the plot that needed to be told or was it the, the the willingness to unpack the characters and their decisions what was what was driving the narrative I guess definitely characters I think yeah yeah uh, obviously uh, yeah it's a plot heavy it's a thriller that, but it is the characters that drive the plot uh, um, very much so so were they kind of telling you what to do I'm always a bit like wary of saying that um, I I don't know if they tell me what to do but they it certainly they probably say what not to do. So I could definitely have set out and been like, well, this is going to happen. And it just wouldn't have rung true. Like, the, you know, it is back to those what if questions. What would this character do? 
if this happened. And I think you, as soon as you know those characters quite well, you know what the answer to that is. And it's very difficult to force a different answer to that what if question with what's hap- what's gone before, what you know about the characters. And so I think in that respect, they do lead everything, yeah. I've got a very supportive agent who is amazing. And over the years, I've gone from writing sort of quite weird literary kind of fiction to YA and now, and I said to her one day, I'm writing this kind of psychological, slightly supernatural thing, which was the tall man. And um, she kind of like, okay, <laughs> fine. And then she read it and loved it. And she did say, I'm, I'm just thinking, maybe we do it under a pseudonym. Like maybe it's a fresh start for you. It separates things. Unfortunately, the industry loves a debut. Like booksellers love a debut. You know, that's fascinating, isn't it? That yeah. that notion, and, and the notion that people possibly wouldn't buy a, a psychological thriller because it was under your old name. Yeah, it is a really strange thing. Um, for me, that was less important. It was with the YA. I do get quite a lot of messages on Instagram or Twitter from you know kids who are sort of thirteen or fourteen, being like, "I love your book. Can't, can't wait to read what you write next." The tall man is really dark. Um, darker than even the July girls I would say and while I'd be you know I read some really dark things when I was sort of 13 or 14 I think that's fine I think it's it's just quite nice to signpost that if you love the YA this is something completely different um, it's it's not a secret that it's me it's a very open pseudonym it says it on the inside cover of both the tall man and the July girls it is just that like expectation like if you pick up a Nicky Cloak YA book you'll get this if you pick up a Phoebe Locke thriller you'll get this other thing and for me I quite like keeping those separate that way so you've you were uh, contracted in to do two yes this is the second one this is the second one do you feel like the ideas for psychological thriller or coming of age psychological thriller are are ripe now I definitely I am a real victim of shiny new idea syndrome that is the thing that is most likely to derail me that's what you were saying before, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah so I've always got new ideas. Uh, it's more a case of sitting with one for long enough to make sure that it turns into a novel. Um, but yeah, I'm out of contract now, which is, I think it's supposed to be really scary, but I'm actually loving it. I'm loving writing something that no one's expect, that no one's waiting for, that is just mine for a little while. Whereas a two-book contract is, is amazing and it's a great thing to have, but you are very early on aware that there is a team behind the novel and they're waiting and they want to know what you're doing and they're very helpful and sort of saying, oh, well, you know, your editor will say to you, oh, well, what do you think about maybe making more of that element of the story? Which is great, it's great to have that support, but sometimes it's nice to just figure something out by yourself again. And I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying that. It's really scary because you could spend a year working on something and no one ever gets to read it, yeah. but I'm kind of loving it. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. You can find out loads more about Phoebe's work over on our website, which is writersroutine.com. That's a fantastic place for you to get in touch with the show, by the way. We've got a contact form there, nice and easy for you to find. Just send us a few words about how you think the show is going, how you think we're doing. I'd love to hear any thoughts about that, really. Also, if you've got any ideas about authors that you really want to hear on the show, that's where you can let me know. I've had quite a few of those in recently. 
don't worry, I'm doing all I can to find a myriad of horror writers and romance writers. Speaking of romance writers, actually, uh, we've got one coming in next week. A memoir writer termed rom-com author. She'll be on telling us all about that. Make sure you stick around for that. And if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to say thanks, if you want to give a little back to Writer's Routine, you can just support us over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Uh, give us a follow over on Twitter and Instagram if you can. We put up pretty much daily quotes and bits of advice from some of the best authors that we've had on the show and if you do have a spare second i'd love you to give us a review over on apple podcasts they're kind of redesigning the whole thing uh, over summer so when they get back into it at the start of september we hope uh, let's hit the ground running with that if you can give us a review over on apple podcasts i'd love you to do it and we'll be back next week uh, with the rom-com author laura jane williams i'll see you then on writer's routine Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.